Hello and welcome to PostgreSQL, a weekly show about all things PostgreSQL. I am Michael, founder of PG Mustard, and today I am joined by Chelsea Dole, staff software engineer and tech lead of the data storage team at Brex and speaker at several prestigious Postgres conferences over the past couple of years. Thank you so much for joining me, Chelsea. Thanks so much for having me, Michael. Wonderful. Well, I have seen several of your talks and loved how well you've explained a few concepts now. One of those was bloat. And looking back at our previous episodes, I realized we hadn't actually done an episode on bloat itself. We've done plenty that mention it, that are around it. But uh, I loved your explanations and I'm uh, looking forward to having a chat with you about what it is, how people can think about it and some strategies around it. Thank you. Well, you know, as a Postgres FM loyal listener, I've definitely listened to a couple of those, you know, uh, bloat sphere conversations, let's say. So it's nice to be addressing it more directly. Yeah, awesome. So in terms of where to start, I guess we should cover what is bloat? How do you think about it? So Postgres bloat basically occurs as a function of MVCC and its kind of extension of vacuum. So in MVCC, all the actions you're doing, inserts, updates, deletes, those are all actually updates or editing metadata on a tuple, not hard deleting it in place. And this is basically allows MVCC to be both compliant with asset and still fast. So it doesn't slow it down extremely slow. When those tuples are generally hard deleted is through vacuum, which you know runs every now and again, depending on your configurations and auto vacuum. But if AutoVacuum can't keep up and you have lots of those inserts and updates and deletes, then you can get into a state where your Postgres pages are basically bin packed with a bunch of dead or soft deleted tuples. And that leads to bloat. So bloat is the state where you have these table pages that are full of basically useless data that vacuum is hurrying to kind of run around and catch up. And so Postgres has to keep on adding new empty pages to the end of your heap, which leads to all sorts of, I'd say, non-optimal outcomes. So too long didn't read. It's unoptimal tuple density in your pages. Yeah, I really like that. So if we end up in a situation where a, a large proportion of our table, uh, maybe including the indexes, is sparsely stored on disk, that has knock-on effects and that's referred to as a table with a lot of bloat. I've thought about it in the past as almost the diff between the table's current state and if we completely rebuilt that table with its indexes. Like the diff, I, I think, was bloat. I don't, I don't think it's the only definition that's acceptable because of like fill factor and things. Like there are other... Uh, technical details, but I like it because I think it's quite practical and um, in terms of what it means. So, what, but why why is this a problem? Like, when when have you seen this cause issues, and how bad are these issues? There's a huge spectrum there, and I would first preface by saying, and I wouldn't call this a hot take, but maybe a lukewarm take is that bloat is really not always a problem. Um, mm. You know, I think that a lot of people think of it as, as this, oh God, our tables are bloated. What are we ever going to do? But there's plenty of situations where you can have a bloated table that's serviceable and you're able to get it to a slightly better state without any drastic measures. But the main issue that bloat can cause, which can lead to downstream issues, is really increased IO. 
And IO is sort of the grandfather of all these downstream issues that nobody likes, like high latency on your reads. Mm. You know, it leads to IO because essentially, if you think of it logically, like if I have 10 rows across two pages, if I do a sequential scan, I've now scanned two pages. That's a certain amount of IO. But if I have really bad tuple density, I've got table bloat, then maybe I'm scanning 10 rows or 10 tuples across eight pages. And so I'm scanning the same amount of data, but I just had, you know, 4x the IO. So that can lead to downstream negative effects with reads, of course. And you guys have talked a couple of times about, you know, explained buffers and things like that. So that's a really good way to sort of see off the cuff, you know, whether you're using an appropriate amount of IO. But as I said, there are places where you can have, you know, some, some amount of table bloat and it's not really causing an issue. I would say that where I look for it, as the biggest long-term issue to solve and really address is those workloads that are going to be very update and delete heavy. Having some bloat on like a normal workload, if your users aren't seeing effects on latency through the IO, I would sometimes just say shrug, you know, the important thing is the end-to-end experience and the long-term maintainability for you as a dev. Yeah, love that. Um, And very practical as well. I've seen a a couple of your talks on this. And you mentioned IO, but you mentioned it quite late on. And I'm like, oh, yeah, like it is as simple as that, really. Obviously, there are other bad things. Like it's taken up more disk space, right? Like it's taken up more space in memory. Uh, But ultimately, user experience wise, that is normally what a lot of us are fighting with, especially on busy systems. So slow slow queries that users are reporting is a natural sign. How, How do you go from that to realizing, oh, my problem is a bloated table? I think there's sort of two paths for that in my experience. The first one is before you ever know what bloat is, how do you discover bloat? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I would say that usually the path is you have a really bloated system <laughs> and there's really no other explanation for it until you go down those paths and try to figure it out. For myself, just sort of going through how I discovered table bloat, thinking back, you know, I've worked, I would say, in Postgres at scale, the last two companies I've worked at. Before that, with it more as like a passing, just tool I happened to use. And I saw it in great scale when I first started at Brex. And the way that I actually saw it is that we had a developer reach out and they said, hey, you know, I have this, let's say 50 gigabyte table, 50 gigabytes of tables total on this server. It's only one database. And for some reason, we're like, almost running out of disk. Why do I have so, like, like why, where's all this space going? Cause I can see my table size and then the remaining table space on disk. You know, we use RDS on cloud so you're able to see all that pretty easily. And um, I went and I said, huh, I actually don't totally know. <laughs> Let me check this out. And when I went and checked it out, I could see that there was just a ton of bloat. And here, interestingly, the bloat was actually coming from a toast table bloat. Oh, nice. I know, which is like an interesting little side quest here conversationally. But, you know, toast is just other tables, you know, the oversized storage technique or whatever fun acronym they made up with it. Those are just tables under the hood too, so they can also get bloated. So I'd say that was my first time needing to go through the entire song and dance of bloat that needed to be like fixed through, I would say, like strong measures versus maybe just, you know, tinkering some little stats here and there. But I think that once you know what bloat is, it's pretty easy to look out for it. 
Operationally, there's observability tools and dashboards. You can instrument your own. I think a whole lot of DBAs have their own, you know, private stash or ideally GitHub open source stash of like fun queries they like to use or extensions they have in their back pocket. And we can dive a little more into those if you want. But um, I think that there's sort of those two paths. There's the path of, oh, God, what's going on? And the path of once you've seen it, you can kind of pattern match. Yeah, nice. I like the system level like path in. And I've all, I because of my background and the tool I work on, I see it more from the other uh, direction. So somebody looking at an incredibly slow read query that has no right being that slow and using explain, analyze buffers. And as you mentioned it, like when we say incredibly bloated, you could easily have uh, at least before Postgres 14, which had some great, one especially good optimization in it, you could have an index that was 10 times bigger than it needs to be if you let's say you rebuilt re-index concurrently the result afterwards might be 10 times smaller so that that's a significant amount of extra read you might be doing especially if you're returning a bunch of rows so you mentioned like uh, eight reads instead of one but if you're looking at the last thousand rows if you're doing eight thousand instead of one thousand you start to notice that in latency so it's it's quite cool we in fact we used to call the tip table bloat likelihood and I renamed it a couple of years ago to read efficiency, uh, oh, be- partly yeah. because of your, like it's, it goes back to your density question again. Uh, it's, it's, it's not necessarily bloat, but it, well, it's not, it's not necessarily about the likelihood of it. It's more about the efficiency of those reads. And it might be a locality issue, which is somewhat bloat related as well. So yeah, love this. Great. So you mentioned, and you, you've spoken before about, queries to estimate and other techniques for looking into like getting more maybe accurate or depending on your definition of accurate um, measures of this. What's your advice on minimizing this, dealing with it? Yeah, I guess the the, the first thing to to the measure of how to identify whether you have bloat or how much you have and decide what to do with it. The first step there is really, again, kind of a trade off of what matters to you. Does the speed and low system impact matter to you in this sort of DBA process of figuring out how much bloat you have? Or does accuracy of the exact percentage of bloat or the exact tuple count and being 100% sure that your stats are right matter to you? And so again, kind of like I said in the discussion about how um, bloat can kind of be okay or not something you really need to deal Mm -hmm. with in certain situations, this is one where you kind of get to decide your priorities. If your priority is 100% accuracy, or I would say also, if you have downtime hours on your database where you can easily do this without any user effect, or if you have a small system and for whatever reason, you happen to be you know, bloated through your own write patterns, but it's not actually that important, then I would suggest pgstat-tuple. pgstat-tuple is a Postgres contrib module, and basically it gives you some functions that you're able to run and they will basically do a sequential scan through a target table, or I think through a target database if you want to run if you want to run all tables, and it will return to you the the count of live dead tuples, um, you know, free space map stuff, as well as a few other statistics. And that one I would say is on the side of you have resources to spare. You're not going to impact users because CPU does spike during this, and there's no way to get around the sequential scan because you can't exactly index it. The point is to actually look at the pages. So it's always going to be a sequential scan. 
The other option is through using, I would say, estimation queries. And these tend to leverage internal tables already used by Postgres or kept up to date during the analyze process. So these would be like PG class rel tuples and things like that will estimate the number of live dead tuples you have based on a sampling during analyze. So before you run anything that's an estimate, you do want to run analyze, you know, right before, but then you're able to guess a proportion based on a sampling of your table data. This is a better option, I would say, for really high criticality systems or extremely large tables. You know, if you have a 500 gigabyte, 800 gigabyte table, or even just one that's 80 gigs, but is very, very critical for users, and maybe you're already kind of medium on CPU, you can't stand those resources, then there's really no downside to just using a table sample. You know, there's no reason that this number needs to be precise. Yeah. So uh, what uh, what is alarming? To, well, I guess it's, I guess the answer is it depends. But you, in fact, I've I've watched, <laughs> rewatched your talk recently, so I know I'm stealing from you there. But you've got some great rules of thumb on what you consider to be bad on the table bloke front. Yeah. Well, I, I don't think I could possibly steal. It depends because that's just like a everybody in engineering should be saying it depends all the time. <laughs> but you know, my personal rules of thumb, speaking just for myself is that um, on very small tables, blow is not of a problem. So a gigabyte, two gigabytes, that, as I'm saying, is very, very small. Even if you would see up to 75% bloat, you know, out of vacuum will be able to take care of this, the total impact your system, there's just no way that it can be high or significant, you know, knock on wood. I'm sure somebody will comment with <laughs> some counterexample, but at least in mine. Beyond that, I would say if you get to one to 30 gigabyte range, I would say 25% bloat, so 25% of your total table space being taken by dead tuples is acceptable. And then as you go higher from about 30 gigs, I would say you want to inch that acceptability downwards. So I would say once you get up to 100 gigabytes, I would aim for like 18%. And then I would flatline at about 18%. I would never, one important thing is you should never expect 0% dead tuples. If you completely rebuild a table or if you fix every auto vacuum setting or you've you know used an extension and repacked it, you still will have some bloat. And that's okay. <laughs> yeah, right. Like it, unless you unless you're gonna show off because you've got like an append only table with no bloat. But if you've got updates and deletes, it's a it's a trade-off of the system, right? It's the trade-off of the design that Postgres has given us. You've recommended this talk a few times. I'm most of the way through watching it, but Peter Gagan's given another great talk that is criminally underwatched at 200 views. So I'm going to share that. But it mentions some of, some of the trade-offs that Postgres are making in this area. So it's guaranteed. I, I think as soon as we start doing updates and deletes, it's guaranteed that at, at least past a certain like frequency of those updates and deletes, we're going to have some bloat. So yeah, it's a really good point. Yeah, there's no wholesale way to avoid it. It's more mitigating the downstream effects and making sure you don't accidentally look up and realize you're in a crazy situation in a couple months or years. Yeah. Where did, I'm curious though, where, I, I understand totally kind of uh, as you get larger uh, data volumes, trying to aim for a smaller percentage bloat because like in real terms, that's that's more gigabytes of bloat or more pages that could be being scanned through for reads and things like that. But where did 18% come from like trying to get it lower than that, like fighting some update heavy tables or where, where that seems quite a specific number to me for like a thumb, like rule of thumb. 
Yeah, great question. Um, and actually, this is the first time I've been asked this question, which no I appreciate. The, the, first, the first answer to why 18% or why these numbers is, as someone who watches Postgres talks and as somebody who takes it in, I have to admit there's part of me that gets annoyed when nobody gives real numbers. Mm-hmm. And I realize that it comes from the reality of it depends, as we already kind of exposed on. But I really wanted to provide something concrete. And so when I gave those numbers, I thought about my previous projects and I thought about, okay, well, what happens if I completely rebuild this table or I I repack it and don't insert anything? Usually you would see table bullet around eight to 10% then still, at least in my experience, because if you're rebuilding a table, at least if you're using extension like PG repack, for example, or PG squeeze, you know, it's still going to need to kind of build up and write all the live data into it as it's rebuilding the duplicate table. So you're not going to end up at like 0% unless you, I believe, I assume, unless you, you know, vacuum full. <laughs> and so 18% came out of, I'd say, like opportunism of what I wanted to provide and also just on experience of when I started to see a tipping point into performance. And when you start to get far enough that you can't really recover it, without rewrites. So the reason I would say 18% is not because 20% or 25% even on a large table is the end of the world, but because I think once you start slipping into that more bloated table space at large tables, it's harder to recover from and it needs more drastic measures than a little tuning here and there. And also if you imagine you have a you know one terabyte table, which I know that I've had before at companies, then if you get to 20% of dead tuples, you now have um, you know, 200 gigabytes of just bloat. So at scale, you know that becomes money, whether you're in the cloud or not, you're paying for that disk. That's kind of another downstream negative effect other than IO. So it's kind of, it's, it's money, it's personal experience, and it's also just wanting to put a sticker and a number on something so you have a target to aim at. Yeah, I really like that. I agree. It's difficult without any real numbers, but it also like you could have you could have said fifteen percent. I probably wouldn't have questioned it. It's just more. It's more practical. It's more likely to be based on your real experience, which I liked a lot. Cool. So I wanted to come back to the you mentioned toast and the acronym, or, or probably backronym. If you've got any yeah. because that phrase, yeah, that's a really fascinating case that I don't think I've not seen. I've not spoken to anybody about, but it makes like intuitive sense because because of the nature of toast we, we could have potentially large values across multiple pages but I, I would have guessed they would be more easily reused but i'm not but that's a total guess i've yeah did you, do you have any more details on that well i i'm sure I'll, i'm sure i'll get some of this possibly wrong but i think actually it's surprising that we don't see toast in more situations of bloat because when you're updating a value in toast Um, To my knowledge, it's not able to be as intelligent as other update methods can be. So you're actually replacing or updating more often than not. So toast tables themselves, as I guess a background in case anybody listening is like not familiar, what happens is if you have an extended field, you know, you have extended and non-extended data types in Postgres. If you have an extended field, so things such as JSONB, or, you know, var cars with, I think, longer limits or byte A, then all these are examples when they can go over the maximum single tuple size. If they reach that threshold, then Postgres will compress it through some method, depending on your Postgres version, 
and they'll just store it in a separate table called toast table. And in the main table, let's say you're a point, you have a users table, then that's basically just a pointer to this toast table. So in the example I mentioned before, when I ran into bloat on the toast table, the reason you would see this is maybe you have a small table even, it could be a you know five gigabyte table, but every row in this is you know, extremely large data types. You know, I'm sure we've all seen those tables where there's five columns and each of them is like a massive JSON B value. And they could be updating those all the time. You could be doing field updates, you could be doing anything. And if you get up to a certain TPS on that, then every single time you do an update, it's gonna be rewriting that value in the toast table. And Postgres does look at toast as far as I know, like just any other table. So AutoVacuum is running it on it the same exact way. You know, I have a talk on partitioning and I kind of say the same. Partitioning to me is like UX. It's it's DBA UX. We see it as one table. Postgres just sees tables. And same thing with same thing with toast. And so in that case, we had a small table that was just super high update for those very large fields. And you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Michael, maybe you know more about this, but I think that the nature of how Toast does those updates is they're not able to do like, I think key value updates in toast fields. They have to always rewrite. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, well, it sounds it sounds like any other value in Postgres, right? Like it's a single um, entity. So like even in a large text field, uh, it, without it being toasted, if you, if you had, if you it pasted in the entirety of War and Peace and then only changed one word, but it was all a single value, I believe we'd need a new tuple with, if, well, bad example, because that one definitely wouldn't fit in a single page. So it would be toasted. Um, yes. <laughs> but yeah, if you, let's say you took a one kilobyte chunk of text and changed only like a few characters in it, I think it would work the exact same way. So yeah. yeah. The only caveat to that, I believe, is that when you toast something, you toast an object, you toast it in chunks of a discrete size. So if you did toast War and Peace, <laughs> then, you know, it would be, you know, you would run into the tuple length issue in Toast as well. Toast doesn't have a longer, you know, maximum tuple length. It's just that it will chunk it via some algorithm, compress it. And then so War and Peace will actually be a pointer to, let's say, 10 tuples, all of them compressed. So I believe that when you edit one word, you know, you, 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 you fix your spelling mistake, you know, Leo Tolstoy, Leo Tolstoy really has to go back and fix that. Then when he retoasts it, then he has to recompress and rechunk all those 10 values again, not just the one. So I think it might be, you know, we're figuring this out really talking about, it. I think it might be something that scales the issue with depending with increased size of the object itself. Yeah, I'd love to hear from anybody who has dealt with this um, or looked into it or, or written it. Sometimes we get uh, some quite in-depth uh, responses, which we love. The question, I guess, is let's say ten. Let's say we've got a, uh, something that's spanning tens of tens of kilobytes, so multiple pages. Your eight-page example might be good, and we re rewrite it so we get eight more pages. The question then hap is, what happens to the the eight? previous ones uh, once they get marked as dead and if they could get reused easily we shouldn't get too much bloat but if they're getting i guess if auto vacuum can't keep up that's when it ex uh, accelerates so it would make sense in a in a system for example where auto vacuum isn't able to keep up with that toast table for some reason or isn't maybe it's been disabled on that table or like well, yeah anyway 
Totally. That can also be a place where you need to tune auto vacuum max workers mm-hmm. higher because auto vacuum max workers defaults to three. And this doesn't really have an impact depending on your table size. It has an impact depending on your table count. So if you have, if you have, I would say more than hundreds. So getting into thousands of tables, that's, or, and many of them are large. Maybe the auto vacuum worker takes a long time on one table. That's where you're going to want to start tuning that up giving extra resources on your server over to vacuum compared to servicing queries, I would say for the greater good. Yeah. And just to be clear, when you say like hundreds of tables, we're counting each partition as a table in that case. Yeah. Each partition. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Cool. So anything I haven't asked you about that I should have done or any other tips for this? Hmm. Let's see. I think the only thing we didn't get around to that I think I would want to make sure I shill <laughs> is some more details about how to fix a yes. loaded table once you see it. So if you have discovered you have a loaded table, let's say that you're above that metric, that you know rule of thumb, maybe well above it. Like I said, when I found that toast table, it was like 95% bloat. So <laughs> that explained a lot. And I would say that there's, at that point, there's a couple routes you need to go down. The the first is to recognize that bloat is caused by a combination of auto vacuum configuration and update and delete heavy workloads. Just one of them won't get you there. It's both together. And so if you're only a little bit bloated, maybe you just kind of keyed onto it via some, you know, observability metric or, you know, warning level ping you got in some place or other. At that point, I would recommend going the route of tuning your auto vacuum configurations, as well as really talking to the dev team or working as a dev yourself to figure out whether there's anything you can do to reduce the volume or difficulty of those updates and deletes. Some common anti-patterns I see are things like cron jobs that run every day or week and delete like a huge amount of data. And they often think they're being helpful when in reality they can be kind of degrading the quality and you know IO return value of that database. In terms of tuning configurations, usually you wanna go one of two broad ways. You either give the server more resources for auto vacuum through auto vacuum max workers, or you tune it to run more frequently. So you tune auto vacuum to actually run more aggressively, which I generally recommend based on system defaults. AutoVacuum did get more aggressive in more recent versions of Postgres. However, it's still generally good to turn up like AutoVacuum vacuum scale factor, especially if you have those large tables. You know, it defaults to only triggering AutoVacuum when 20% of your table is dead rows. So, you know, that's already beyond, I would say, my recommended 18% goal. So if you really wanted to trigger more proactively, you would need to tune that down from 0.2 to, let's say, like, 0.1 or far less. You know, I see a lot of recommendations online that I've used as a user that suggest, you know, every 1% or 3% of dead tuples. Yeah, because for a huge table, that's still a lot of tuples. We we could still be talking about tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions of tuples. And by the time that it's actually done, you could be up higher than that because that's when it triggers. (laughs) And what if it takes hours and hours? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. If you do get really, really far behind, you know, you check the clock and you're up to that like 90% bloat table, that is a good time to consider rebuilding the table. If you can afford it, vacuum full, you know, 
well, most people can't these days if it's a user facing application. So that's the reality. But I always say that first because there are situations in which you can, again, looking from the user perspective, and it's a lot easier. The other thing you sure. can do is use an extension like PG Repack or PG Squeeze to rewrite it. And this is basically creates a shadow table duplicate schema. It will copy over all the data, use triggers to update all the coming data coming in from one to another. And then once it's all caught up, it will within an access exclusive lock on the, which lasts, you know, less than a second, definitely. It will basically switch the table names so the prod traffic points towards the new table. This is something that I have seen be flaky. I wouldn't personally recommend automating PG Repack. I've seen and heard of cases in various talks and just through friends in the industry, people that try to automate PG Repack. And, you know, I've seen it lead to a lot of incidents and issues. Um, you know, I've personally never run into an issue where there's any data loss because in the case that you just kill the PID of PG Repack, for example, you just have some dead tables you have to manually drop. The duplicate ones aren't complete, so you use the old one. But I've heard of it causing other issues. So I would be, I would say careful, but mm -hmm. I wouldn't stray away from it totally. Nice. I, I've always thought of it as like re-index concurrently, but for the whole table. Is it, yeah, is that yeah. a reasonable comparison or? I guess it's missing some subtlety around potential flakiness, but that can fail as well, right? Like if re-index concurrently fails, you can end up with some invalid indexes. I think that's a really good analogy, actually mainly because they're both non-transactional because, you know, concurrently mm. or anything concurrent, you know, the thing that it's, it's an unusual move by Postgres. And I'm sure there was a lot of discussion on the core team about this when they first started releasing concurrent features, because it's a decision by the core team to value the user Postgres experience by DBAs and applications over the strict rules of MVCC. Because when you create an index concurrently, if it fails, you have the invalid index. So it's not atomic. It's not able to roll back. And the same thing with PG Repack. If it fails, then you have these invalid tables, invalid indexes that you need to drop. You know, if you try to rerun it, it's not a no-op. You'll have to clean it up first. Yep, cool. Okay, I'm well, glad that's good. So that that's a really good point in terms of auto vacuum and in terms of repacking or vacuum full if if you can afford the heavy locks um or if you if your system just doesn't have any users at a certain time of day or something like that right but it is it's rare but it is common enough that i have been caught out by not recommending it a couple of times which is super mm -hmm. interesting cluster is in the same category right like same as vacuum full but you get to order it by an index which can be helpful for like reads definitely cool uh Last, in fact, you mentioned right at the beginning, and I had to bite my tongue not to jump straight on the pun because that's how my brain works. You mentioned a hot, having a hot take. So you talked quite a lot in the past about access patterns. And I, one point I loved was the idea of considering if you've got an update or delete heavy workload, which could be the reason you're in the situation. Do you even need to be doing those updates and deletes? Like That's a question that yeah. doesn't get asked very often. And you made a really good point. So there's there's that angle that I'd love you to talk on if you if you want to, and there's also the the hot update optimization we have in Postgres that can be a huge help for some like avoiding if you if you're aware of it, not indexing a certain column if you don't have to. Like there's some trade offs there that might be interesting. I don't know if you've got experience with those. 
Yeah, I guess so. So first, address the, the first part of it. Um, yeah. Glad you glad you brought it up because this is a this is definitely a strong opinion of mine, and I think that's something that comes from coming to being what I would describe as somewhere between the liminal space of a software engineer and a DBA through, you know, backend engineer to data engineer to DBA, just, you know, sinking my way down into infrastructure. And, you know, I think that I still tend to think from a perspective of a backend or data engineer a lot of the time. And from that, I think that it's good for us to all remember that so many of these access patterns and rights, the, the biggest hammer you can use is to just not do it or to rewrite it. And if you're a DBA managing a couple or hundreds of databases, you know, speaking for myself, I'm managing the hardware and the high-level metrics. So I don't really have access or knowledge without talking to somebody into the why. Why do we have this query? Why do we have this database itself? What the, what the heck's in it? And so I think that if you really want to address bloat, often the best thing you can do is to start a conversation and say, hey, what's the value of this? Can we simplify it? Do we need to be deleting this? Do we need to have this table? You know, it's crazy how many times that I've dealt with a problem that way and I've never needed to delve into the more, I would say, extensive measures. And also, if you can, keeping those relationships with people at your organization or whoever you're working on a project with to try to be able to let them keep that up by themselves. You know, at my company, we've built some automation around, let's say, like auto, like auto education as far as we can. We're still working on it, but a way to kind of allow developers to be proactively educated about how they're building their systems. And so I think that as much that you can do that and just, I would say, change the patterns from the code side is the quickest way. That's a PR. Awesome. I was not expecting it to go that way. What's this automatic education thing? Is there anything you can share there? Yeah. I will Maya culpa here and say that I wish I could say it were a more, <laughs> a more, you know, like amazing system than it probably is. But we've used, for example, GitHooks and GitHub webhooks to automatically comment documentation that we've written on PRs. For example, if we see running a migration, we pin the migration guide to your PR rather than requesting us as reviewers. Because I work in an organization of larger than, you know, a thousand people. So mm -hmm. I don't want to be a blocker on your migration. I want to educate you. Same thing with partitioning. I wrote after we dealt with partitioning stuff, you may have noticed that a lot of the talks I write are based off whatever the heck I'm struggling with at work. <laughs> and so I wrote a very in-depth migration, like partitioning migration guide, both for future people on my team, as well as people who might want to partition and need to understand why, how, whether it's a good idea. So I think that creating documentation is good, but we all know it falls, it falls out so quickly. You know, you change one thing, it's deprecated, you forget about it, the person leaves. So I think that like the underappreciated side of it is figuring out easy systems where you're auto commenting it or you're, you know, pushing it towards people in a way that actually keeps it actively read. Awesome. Sounds great. Is there anything else you'd like to plug or give a shout out to? Um, not particularly. I think that I, you know, I'm sort of a relative newbie to the Postgres community being involved in the open source side. You know, I've went to my first Postgres conference last year and then sort of ran at it at, you know, 100 miles an hour <laughs> ever since then, which has been really fun to get involved. So I guess I would just say thank you to all you guys for inviting me in. It's been a great past year to being more involved in Postgres. 
it's awesome to have you in the community. I still feel new and I feel like I've been here for like five or six years. So it's awesome having you here. You're a wonderful contributor to the community. Your talks are great. Please keep please keep giving talks on issues you're hitting with Postgres. They're some of the most fascinating that the community can have and also not common enough at conferences, I think, personally. So yeah, appreciate it. And I appreciate the real numbers as well. So thank you so much, Chelsea. Yeah, thank you for um, for hosting this. I, I listen to you guys as, as many people do in the car. So you know, same oh, thing. Oh, nice. You guys, uh, keep keep me going with good things to to read while yelling at various drivers on the road. Well, apologies. You're probably gonna have to skip a week. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Listen to your voice is too hard. <laughs> Tell me about it. Take care, Chelsea. Thank you.